0: Not proud, but that was me, and when I face it, I take back a little dignity, not looking for excuses, I just want to be free from power weakness head on. Hi,
1: everyone, and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm Jean McCarthy, recovery author, blogger, and podcast host. I've been chronicling my adventures in life after alcohol since my first day of sobriety nearly 10 years ago in my blog on Pickled and in the books I write. I tell my stories there, and I hold space for your stories here. And today, I'm holding space for Kelly. Hi, Kelly. Welcome to the Bubble Hour.
2: Hi, Jean. It's such an honor to be here.
1: Well, thank you so much. Now, you have a anniversary coming up, I think, in a couple of months here, don't you?
2: Um, my sober date is July 6, 2019.
1: Um, so I will have 20 months uh, next month. That's awesome. Well, I'm I'm excited that you're here to tell us about how it's been and what you've learned through this time. So, I'm going to turn the mic over to you. So, Kelly, tell us about yourself and tell us your story.
2: Thank you so much. I am 47 years old, and I live in the beautiful city of Charlotte, North Carolina. I have one son who is now a junior in college, and my sober date again is July 6, 2019. I grew up in a small town in Illinois, and as a child, I don't remember there being any alcohol in our home, or seeing either of my parents drink. The only family members I recall drinking at all were my two uncles, who were also alcoholics. During my childhood, I remember there being a lot of tension and arguing between my parents going on in the home. I was always scared of upsetting my mother and was constantly walking on eggshells, which caused me a ton of anxiety. Eventually, my parents divorced when I was nine years old. My mom immediately remarried without even introducing my brother and I to the man she was marrying. My stepfather was extremely abusive emotionally, verbally, and physically. At least half of the time, he would be under the influence of alcohol. My mom would sit by and watch it happen and even participate most times. I felt completely abandoned by my mother on every level. All I wanted was for her to protect me. I couldn't understand how any parent could let these things happen to their own child, especially at the hand of someone else. My mom was controlling to the point where I felt like I couldn't breathe. She carried emotional baggage of her own and a lot of the time she took that out on me, oftentimes physically abusing me or my brother. I wasn't allowed to do the things that the rest of my peers were doing. I was taking on parenting responsibilities at the age of 11 years old when she gave birth to two more children. There was a constant tension in the household. When I had to go home, I just prayed it would be a quiet night with no fighting, no arguments, and no abuse. We didn't do feelings in my home. Anytime I expressed my feelings, I was punished and called names and sometimes even physically abused for it. Finally, when I was 17, I went to live with my dad and had to go before a judge to tell him about the abuse so that my dad could have full custody. But unfortunately, by that time, the trauma had already happened. I remember maybe a couple of times where I had tried alcohol and was completely repulsed by the taste. However, when I graduated high school is when this slippery slope began. My first memories of being drunk were being confident and outgoing and cool, but that quickly turned into being completely out of control with the nights often ending in vomiting and blackouts. That was what all of my friends were doing and we would brag the next day about who drank the most and who did the craziest thing while drunk. But in the town I grew up in, that was the only thing anybody was doing. And I was right there along with them. I felt that if I stayed in that town, I wouldn't really achieve anything and would end up an alcoholic like everyone else. So in 1993, I decided to move to North Carolina, where there were more college and career opportunities. I decided I would work in a bar so I could make friends quickly. I wanted to fit in somewhere and be this cool and edgy party girl uh, with a bigger than life personality, someone that everyone wanted to hang out with. I was successful in making friends. However, I was also ramping up my drinking with those same friends. At the age of 21, I was introduced to cocaine. I had found a substance that not only balanced out the alcohol, but also kept me awake longer so I could drink more alcohol. Like alcohol, cocaine eventually became a must for every weekend, which gradually progressed into weekdays. I was consuming my heart and soul away, just telling myself, it was a phase and convincing myself, I will quit when I'm ready to quit. Around the age of 22, I started getting into the club scene and began experimenting with drugs like ecstasy, mushrooms and LSD while drinking and still doing a lot of cocaine. During this time, I was also working in food and beverage and the culture was very centered around alcohol and partying. Eventually, my reckless behavior caught up with me when I got my DUI on my 25th birthday. I blew a .16 on the breathalyzer, and then I was arrested and put in a prison cell at three o'clock in the morning. I had to spend the early morning hours in jail until my ex-boyfriend came to bail me out eight hours later. As a result of the DUI, I lost my job and my driving privileges for six months. I'm very lucky it wasn't longer. It was a very difficult situation to go through, but I was so grateful that I had not hurt myself or someone else. I thought this would be my wake-up call, but unfortunately, it wasn't. When I was 26, I found out that I was pregnant with my son. The pregnancy was completely unplanned and a huge surprise, to say the least. When I had an ovary removed back when I was 18, I was told I most likely would not have children, and here I was pregnant. So my son's father and I decided to co-parent as opposed to getting back together. Um, I was fearful of making it on my own as a single mother. I was actually terrified. I was still really young and not ready to be a parent. But in my heart, I knew that somehow, some way, I would make it with or without a partner. After our son was born, we decided to split custody 50-50 and moved forward in a co-parenting relationship. I immediately started drinking heavily again. I was depressed and anxious about being a single mom. I was always worrying about surviving financially and giving my son the best life I could. But with a lot of strength and hard work, I made things work. Fast forward two years and my son's father and I end up getting back together and we ended up getting married. I thought being married and having a family unit would finally slow my drinking down. However, my alcohol consumption escalated to an all-time high, as did my other addictions, especially cocaine. I was working in corporate America and was completely submerged in the drinking culture. I would initiate cocktail hours on a weekly basis. The typical happy hour consisted of three or four strong martinis and then driving home, talking on the cell phone with my music blasting completely forgetting the fact that I had a DUI not too long ago. Mommy wine culture also became a big thing around that time. I thought, perfect. Now I won't feel like such a lush. Everyone else is doing it, so I'll blend right in. I was also making excuses for not going home after work and not showing up as a parent while I was recovering My ex was taking our son and going to the school meetings and the birthday parties and doing all the cleaning and basically running the entire ship. When I did start to feel normal, I would just turn around and do it again. I would incorporate drinking into everything I did. I would drink while I cooked, while I dined, while I watched TV while I was out on lunch break, while I was trick or treating with my son. And then you had the pool parties and the cookouts and the holidays and the birthdays. Basically, anytime I was breathing, I was drinking. I also wasn't giving myself completely as a parent or a wife, but I was also not there for myself on any level. I had no self-esteem and was suffering from depression and anxiety. I kept chasing a feeling over and over again every single day of my life. My anxiety started turning into debilitating panic attacks that sent me to the emergency room several times. I was clueless that alcohol only creates and intensifies anxiety. The thought had never even crossed my mind. I was investing a significant amount of time and energy into my drinking. I was always thinking about drinking and when my next drink would be. Towards the end of my marriage, I cheated, something I told myself I would never ever do. My husband and I ended up divorcing in 2008 after five years of marriage. And after the divorce, things only got worse. I had so much guilt and shame about the way I had treated my husband and wrecked our marriage that I continued to drink and use drugs even more. I was in so much pain, I just wanted to someone to come and save me. I ended up meeting a guy who lived in New York through a mutual friend, and he was wild in every sense of the word, and the perfect distraction from myself and the pain I was feeling after my divorce. Plus, he loved to party even more than myself. I had another addiction, and it was ready and waiting for me at one of the lowest points in my life. Not only did we enable each other, but both of us could escape from our problems and trauma bond. He was also going through a divorce and an alcoholic and drug user like myself. I would fly up to visit him once a month. And from the moment I got to the airport to the time I left to go back home, we would be under the influence of drugs and alcohol. And when Mondays came around, I would be physically and emotionally drained, which only fed my anxiety and stress in life. My sick time off work ramped up and my performance was at an all-time low in my career. I was coming up with complete lies from my absences in hopes that it would be enough for me to hold on to my job. I lost the majority of my jobs for this very reason. I had become highly reactive and irresponsible, and no one wanted to be around me. In my mind, I thought that I was this awesome friend, girlfriend, coworker, but I was completely delusional by this point. That is how tightly alcohol had its grip around me. After a few chaotic years, that relationship ended and I jumped right into the next one with another alcoholic. This relationship lasted almost four years and was toxic from day one. I was extremely codependent and I needed that validation to feel good about myself. In my mind, if you liked me, I felt less broken. I told myself I wasn't good enough, and I had so many insecurities. As a result, I always ended up with people that mirrored that, people who were emotionally unavailable like myself, and I was completely ignorant of my own fear of intimacy. I was also codependent in all of my relationships, whether romantic professional family or friends. Um, The more codependent I became, the more desperate I felt, the more I chased people, and then the more I used. I felt insignificant if I didn't have someone's love and attention. When someone left, it felt as if my life was over. It would also trigger the constant fear of more abandonment, especially with men. I would end up with men who were narcissistic and really not interested in taking the time to get to know me. I didn't think I could do any better, and I thrived on crumbs of attention, staying in toxic relationships way after they should have ended. I ignored red flags staring me directly in the face. Even when I knew something or someone wasn't good for me, I did it anyway. I carried around this constant anger inside of me, and the more I drank, the angrier I became. This festered into rage as the years went by. I was like a fuse ready to go off. And even the smallest thing set me off. Those around me felt like they were walking on eggshells. And I cannot say that I blame them. I wasn't paying my bills on time. All of my money was going towards my addictions. I couldn't keep commitments of any kind, sometimes not even to my son. I was always people pleasing and giving myself to anyone who would have me. I was having numerous health issues with my stomach from all the alcohol and cocaine use, but I found a way to blame it on something else. The self-loathing had completely consumed me and I was just a shell of a person at that point. There was no safety net there anymore and I knew it was do or die time. Um in 2016 was the first time I realized things had to change. I had spoken to a family friend who is in long-term recovery and she shared her story with me. After we met, I was very inspired and ready to change my life, but I continued to drink for two more years. I continued the drinking until the end of 2018. I had finally had enough and wanted to give sobriety my best shot. I decided to go to a few AA meetings over the first 90 days, but once I received my 90-day chip, I thought I had control of it all. I relapsed and drank for another four months before officially calling it quits on July 16th. 2019. My first year was mostly isolation, but it was also a grieving period, an awakening period, where I was able to step back and get a clearer picture of what was actually going on. Only then could I fully admit I was a full-blown addict and had been for 27 years. I had to stop the denial of my addictions and admit the severity of the situation. Part of me kept telling myself I wasn't that bad, and that simply was not true, and I had to admit that to myself before anything else. I had to let go of my pride, and I had to give up the victim mentality. I also had to stop resisting life and truly believe that life doesn't have to be a struggle all the time. I had to give up the party girl role. It was just a a false persona I had created for myself. Um, I had to stop chasing after my parents and my sibling for love and approval. I had to choose to take the focus off their approval and focus on approval of myself which was something I had never done before. I had to stop spending time with people that were unsupportive or triggering. This meant friends I had been around for 20 years, but at the same time, they were also my main party friends. The longer I became sober, the more obvious it became that almost all of my friendships were formed around alcohol and drugs. I had to set healthy boundaries with my family and friends, and I actually had to stick to them. I, will, I decided I will not be a part of relationships if they don't have love and respect in them. I also had to stop telling myself I am not good enough. I had to tell myself I'm worth fighting for, and enough is enough. I also had to give up fantasy relationships and stop bouncing from one partner to another, trying to fill the void. This meant I had to stop normalizing toxic behavior, and I had to take a long hiatus from dating. And that's what I've done. I've used the past couple of years to focus on myself and my sobriety. I had to see the blessings in life. At first, I was completely focused on all the guilt and shame instead of seeing the lessons. I still get caught up in the guilt and shame trap, but the frequency has subsided. I had to start living in reality. I had to see people in situations for what they truly are instead of what I wanted to, wanted them to be. I had to become the woman who changed her story by doing the thing she didn't believe she could do. I had to stop romanticizing, drinking, and get a clear view of what alcohol was doing to my life. There have been many gifts in my sobriety, a very long list of them, but I'll kind of cover the main ones. The... Biggest gift I've been given in my sobriety is a closer relationship with my son. I really still struggle with forgiving myself for not being there for him when he was younger. By the time I stopped drinking, he was 18. So I gave myself a really, really hard time about um, not being there before but now we've bonded in a closer way than ever and he also does not drink and I couldn't be prouder of that. I have good health. I don't have any more complications with my stomach and I feel good all around. I feel more energetic and young than I ever have at 47 years old. I've gained my dignity and self-respect back. I no longer put myself in sketchy and dangerous situations with people I barely know. Um, There were many times I would wake up not knowing who was next to me or how I had gotten there. I have the ability now to set and maintain healthy boundaries in all of my relationships. And I also have healthy coping tools um, like yoga and meditation and therapy. Um, I've gained back my beautiful mornings with no hangovers. Just waking up and feeling that I have a healthy body and a clear head has been one of the greatest gifts. I have self-love and self-compassion. I'm getting better at giving myself some grace and really getting to know and love myself. I have job stability and better performance at work. I have been at my current job for three and a half years and that's quite an accomplishment for me. I'm accountable. I keep my commitments to myself and other people. When I was drinking, I... Uh, was infamous for blowing off plans, committing to things, and then canceling last minute. And I've taken responsibility for myself and my choices. And last but not least, hope. I have hope that this is a better life and that I have a better future if I continue to stay on this path. Some of the tools I use to stay sober Playing it forward has really, really worked for me. Just recalling, you know, how I would feel after a big night of drinking and drugging and not having to feel that way anymore is just a huge relief. I started online meetings back when the pandemic hit and joined two different groups of online support meetings that have been very, very helpful in helping me bond with other people, and make friendships in the sober community. I do a lot of meditation um, and sound healing. Uh, I use the Inside Timer app, and I take lots of different courses on trauma and healing, and they've got a bunch of stuff on there about addiction as well. I try to exercise as much as possible. I'm staying more committed to it now than I was when I was drinking, So that's progress. And of course, podcasts. The Bubble Hour was the first podcast that I found when I began searching around for sober groups. And it's made a big difference in my life. And it really keeps me on track hearing everyone's stories. Reading and listening to other people's stories and reading about what alcohol does to your body has really been an eye-opener for me and also helps me stay on track. And then, of course, these setting and keeping healthy boundaries. It's such a big part of my recovery, uh, releasing my need for validation from my family and not keeping that door open only to trauma, traumatize myself over and over and over again.
1: So, yeah, that's my story. Wow. Kelly, you have done so much healing. It's amazing that it's been 18 months. I mean, you must've just been, you must've hit the ground running to have done so much good work in that amount of time. I can really hear it in your voice, the amount of growth that you've, that you've experienced.
2: Uh, It's just uh, the best thing I've ever done for myself and those around me. I just wake up every morning, just grateful to my higher power that, I'm still here and I made it through and I really think now that I've done this, that I can do anything.
1: You uh, mentioned that you started out in AA, got your 90-day chip and then relapsed. Did you go back to AA again when you decided to quit?
2: I did not. Um, I like a lot of things that AA has to say and their program, but I didn't feel like it was a good fit for me. So um, after I relapsed, I, at first I didn't do any support meetings. And then I realized once I was coming up on one year that I was starting to almost plan my relapse in my head. And that's when I found online support groups that are so popular now that COVID has hit and you can access, access them at any time on any
1: day of the week. So
2: it's been really wonderful.
1: How did you know you were planning your relapse? What was going on that you saw as a warning sign? So um, I was
2: coming up on one year. Um, It was June and my sober date was in July. And me and my son decided to go to North Myrtle Beach and just have a few days away and get out of the house and get some fresh air. And I remember right before we left for the trip, I was having these thoughts in my head like, You know, maybe I'll just have one tropical drink, not too strong, and then I'll just, that's it. That's all I'll have. And I knew that wasn't true, but I was, I don't know. It was that denial that creeps up every once in a while, whispering in your ear, you're fine. You've got it under your control. But that's when I found the online support groups,
1: and it saved me. That's good that you recognize that. I mean, who wants a weak tropical drink anyway? <laughs> Amen to that.
2: <laughs>
1: Just give me a slushie. <laughs> so how did you go about finding a therapist then?
2: Um, I actually went to my doctor and he gave me some referrals and i immediately connected with her we meet every two weeks and we do a lot of childhood trauma work as opposed to um, my recovery work but we'll be incorporating that later um, but it's it's
1: been so helpful i i only wish i had done it sooner i just i think that's amazing because the foundation of your healing is really addressing those old attachments issues. I'm guessing. I don't know. I'm, I'm not a psychologist. I just wish I was. <laughs> but uh, when I started learning about attachment theory and the results of having disrupted attachments, it's just this sort of cascading effect of, of understanding, oh, that's where that comes from. That's where that comes from. That's how that happens. And are you having aha moments as you work through this stuff?
2: All the time. I, um, I've just learned so much in therapy, it's just like peeling the layers back, trying to get to the root issue. Because if you don't get the root out, you're likely to relapse. So I really try to do the hard work. And it's really painful, you know, dredging up all the old stuff. But after suppressing it for so long, there's just so much to work through. So I'm remaining committed to my therapy appointments and I'm not going to stop going to them just because I start to feel better so that's really key.
1: I'm curious about the process that you're working through in therapy. And so you don't have to talk about the specifics of any incidents, but are there any exercises or processes that you go through regularly in therapy walking back through old memories and reimagining them or remembering something and, and talking to yourself as a parent in that moment. Are there any exercises like that, that you regularly do or that have become tools for you?
2: I mean, we just really work through uh, specific memories at this point. And, you know, that's a lot of um, emotions that come up and she just kind of walks me through that and the things that, you know, I feel guilt and shame about. She, you know, tries to show me that everything wasn't your fault. You know, you're taking on all of this stuff that you don't need to be carrying around. And we just work through each memory separately. And, you know, we've just, she'll tell me to remember a memory and then write it down and then have like a burning ceremony and burn the piece of paper and throw it in the fireplace. And, as silly as it sounds, it's it's been really effective. She also mentioned that she wants to do some EMDR once I'm able to actually come into an office to do the process. So I'm looking forward to that.
1: And EMDR, we just talked about it on a recent show, but that is eye movement EMD. Desensitization and reprocessing. <laughs> so I'm glad you got that because I didn't know the last two letters. <laughs> I should be able to rattle that off quicker. Uh, and and what that is 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 going back to a traumatic memory and then doing some eye specific eye movements that you're guided through at the same time. And what it helps to do the two things together the memory and the eye movement helps to your brain to basically refile that memory so it takes it out of being a a kind of a reactive memory in your in your in that part of your brain and puts it into long-term memory farther away from the emotion Mm -hmm. Um, that's my very very layman's way of explaining it but that's what emdr is and it can be really really effective you talked about codependency and you know being attracted to narcissistic men and and those two things go hand in hand right i mean every narcissist needs a supply for their narcissism and every codependent needs somebody to to cling to <laughs> yeah, absolutely. so it's a real dance and let's talk about what you've learned then cuz you just it, i can hear that you've just gained so much insight around that so what do you look for now? Are you giving yourself a break from relationships now or do you have new criteria or do you find yourself falling back into those old patterns like I have have heard that the brain activity, you know, you mentioned attention from men as really lighting you up. And you said, if you like me, then I'm less broken. And another guest also named Kelly uh, from a couple of seasons ago said, if you like me, then I like you, you know, that was her criteria. Oh, so true. So true. But it actually lights the brain up of somebody with so I think sometimes they call it love addiction or extreme codependency. Mm-hmm. There's like the, the same way that alcohol or drugs hijack the pleasure reward circuitry. Attention from others is like rushing in to fill this void in our hearts and minds where love was is missing. So how do you learn to do that differently? Or has healing just created the ability to engage more from a different part of your brain, but also from a different part of your heart? Are you finding a change in that department?
2: Yes. So when I first got sober, I had been in a series of toxic relationships pretty much my whole adult life and bounced from one to the next to the next. And when I decided to get sober, I knew that I had to take a a break from dating for a significant amount of time if I was going to stay sober. Cause I know how the toxicity of those relationships kept me drinking more and more and more, the more, you know, rejected I felt or upset I was the more I drank and I knew that that had to go or I would not be successful. So now there is definitely different criteria. I haven't started dating yet. Um, I don't feel like I'm quite there or, I've kind of gotten comfortable in my own skin and actually enjoy being around myself. So I don't have this desperate need that I need to be with somebody like I always had. But when I do get back into dating, the criteria will be completely different. I don't have patience for people that don't want to get to know me before they date me. Um, So that's something I will an eye out for. And um, also a person's relationship with alcohol. I don't expect someone to not drink because I don't drink, but I definitely wouldn't be able to be in a serious relationship with somebody who was even, you know, a heavy drinker.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: I mean, how boring. <laughs> 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 that sounds like a total drag.
2: I think they'll actually have to have a personality now too. So, <laughs> but yeah, I've taken a lot of
1: time for that, and you know, I really think it's one
2: of the best things that I've ever done for myself as well.
1: Mm-hmm. And it it sounds like you have a new regard for yourself. You really value yourself, and and so you want to attract a, a partner who who feels the same when the time is right. When that person comes along. I'm curious though, you you said, you know, you have a new identity. You shed your party girl identity and are sort of standing in your own power now and really being yourself. And I can hear your authenticity as you talk, but I want to know, what did you learn about yourself? Like, who did you find out that you are? What have you discovered and embraced and what have you released?
2: I've released a lot of the negative self-talk. I've released telling myself that I'm not good enough that my story doesn't matter, that my voice doesn't matter. I've released stressing out about every little thing. I try to just bring a little more playfulness and lightheartedness to things when they arise instead of catastrophizing everything.
1: Does that surprise you that you have that capacity?
2: It really does. I mean, I was just a hothead ready to blow at any time, 24-7. And now I have, like, an inner calm and an inner inner peace. Like, I'm more accepting of who I am, even my faults. And I've stopped trying to be a perfectionist all the time, which is a huge relief. That was just completely exhausting. Hmm.
1: What about in your body? What changes do you notice in your body now that you're living alcohol-free?
2: Well, I... um, I feel stronger. I feel more energetic. I feel thinner because I am. <laughs> I don't have the the alcohol bloat on me anymore. So my clothes fit again. So that's good. My skin's better. My hair's better. My eyes shine. You know, they're not tired and droopy and haven't had any sleep kind of look. So I just feel good all
1: around. You know... There's something about the eyes. In the online (laughs) groups that I'm on, people will often post their before and afters to to celebrate a milestone or just, you know, come across an old picture of themselves and and post it with a comparison. And you can always see it in the eyes. You're right. Mm -hmm. The eyes shine. Mm -hmm. It's not, there's like a dullness in, in the eyes, of those mm-hmm. old pictures from our pasts when all of us, you know, when we, when we look back on them and it's like a mix of, of numb absence plus fear. That's how yeah. I see it.
2: Completely. Yeah. You can automatically
1: tell in the eyes. So it's okay if you don't want to talk about this, but I'm, I'm curious about your relationship with your mom today have, are you able to have a relationship with her? Is she in a place in her life where she's healed or, you know, made any changes in her life? Or is that something you had to let go of and, and reparent yourself?
2: Yeah. Unfortunately, um, after trying years and years and years and years to change my relationship with my mom, I had to let it completely go Um, Around the time I got sober in um, 2019, it was just kind of another situation where I just kept chasing and chasing and chasing, wanting her love, even after everything I had been through in my childhood and her abandoning me and letting someone else abuse me, I still tried to have a relationship with her. And in 2019, I just had to let it go. It was, it was exhausting and I wasn't healing deep inside while I was continuing to chase her.
1: I'm sorry to hear that. That's really hard, but I think one of the things I'm starting to realize is that not everybody has the capacity to, to change Mm -hmm. or maybe Mm -hmm. for sure not on our timeline. (laughs) but it's a hard realization and I can hear in the way that you speak that you have gained so much wisdom. I mean, and I don't know you, so I didn't know you in the past. I'm not saying this as someone who's watched make changes. I mean, I just, (laughs) I'm speaking to you for the first time today and I hear wisdom in your voice. I hear healing and, and that's hard. I mean, that's, it's hard to get to that place, but is it a relief in a way to realize that that we can just release relationships, that we it's not always up to us to fix them, or maybe they, they aren't meant to be fixed? It truly is.
2: Yeah, it truly is. From the age of
1: 18 to the age of 45,
2: I've been working on this. And it's just, there's there comes a point where, you know, you're okay with letting go. It, it no longer becomes this huge sadness anymore because you've done everything that you can do. You've made the efforts, you've taken the steps, you've showed the love, but it's like you said, you know, you you have to realize sometimes the person doesn't have those capabilities, even if it's your own mother or family or whoever. And um, that's something I also learned in therapy. um, that Sometimes people just don't have the capabilities and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I found that it, understanding that has helped me a lot because I was so excited about everything I was learning. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I wanted to share it with everyone, whether mm-hmm. they wanted to hear it or not and and mm-hmm. like maybe it point out to them that they could really use this information. <laughs> exactly. aren't i nice yes (laughs) it's not awful if you can believe it they don't always appreciate that so (laughs) (laughs) oh man you mentioned that books have been uh, an important part of your recovery do you have some favorites to recommend
2: um i liked sober lush that's a beautiful book yeah it really is it's mainly been podcasts
1: oh tell me about your favorite podcast then
2: Oh, The Bubble Hour. Oh, well, thank <laughs> you. <laughs> Absolutely. My number one favorite, the first one I found. I also uh, like Sober Curious with Ruby Warrington. And oh, the other one is Soberful Podcast. It's, Soberful
1: with Veronica yeah,
2: Valley. With uh, Veronica Valley and Chip Summers. Um, the Unruffled Podcast is another one. Oh, Alcohol-Free Life
1: is Janie Lee Brace. Oh, and Recovery Happy Hour is another one. I'm writing them all down. I'm going to list all these in the show notes for you listeners. Many, many podcasts. I know. They become our friends, don't they?
2: It's just great. You can be driving and listen. You can be anywhere and listen to a podcast at any time. You're having a weak moment or you need to be reminded of why you're sober. It's
1: excellent. I met a listener from Australia, I believe, who said that her kids call me Auntie Jean (laughs) because they hear my voice so much, so.
2: (laughs) I love it.
1: That's awesome. Yeah, I know. It is. It's like we're we're this community of familiarity and, and familiar hearts and even though we don't get to meet each other face to face i I still love the way our lives overlap and the way we can contribute and hold space and pull each other forward and hold each other up and and know that we're not alone and i think that's that's really what it comes down to i am so grateful for the time i got to spend with you today kelly and thank you so much for sharing your story
2: Thank you, Jane. It's a true honor to be here. Um, This was my first time sharing my story with anyone at all. So it's just been an honor to share it with you first.
1: Well, I hope it's not your last time sharing your story because you tell it really well and you have a a lot of great information to share. So thank you so much for shining your light.
2: Thank you, Jane.
1: And listeners, if you would like to give Ke- Kelly some feedback or reach out to her or thank you for sharing her story today, thank her for sharing her story today, email me at thebubblehour@gmail.com, at and I will then forward your message on to Kelly. So that's it for this week, everyone. I thank you all so much for listening. We are all here for one another. I think it's a roomie poem that says we're all just walking one another home. We're all just walking each other home. And uh, I'm I'm so glad to be part of that. So until next time, take good care.
0: I own it, I did that. Not proud but that was me, and when I face it, I take back a little dignity, not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from the power. Weakness head on me in a dark where shame likes to hide Oh, you think you're strong Just cause you'll keep it on the side It just stays in wait there To rob you of your pride Turn the light on, turn the light on You can shine When you see oh, I did that Not proud, but that was me And when I face it, I take back Little dignity. I'm not looking for excuses, I just want to be free from power, oh yes, on, you don't have to shout it out on Main Street to be clear, you don't need to whisper to confession the person you should talk to is looking at you in the mirror And the one who matters most can always hear When you say I'm old, not proud but that was me And when I face it, I take back a little dignity I'm not looking for excuses, I just want to be free from the power Oh, you must when you see oh, the I did that," I'm proud that that was me. And when I face it, I take back a little dignity. I'm not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from power.